Well, let me say for the final time in our study of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, for literally the 106th time, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Found your way to the end. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be looking at these final two verses today. Let me read those for us. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. I looked back at my notes over 30 months ago when we began our study of the book of Ephesians. In fact, some people first hour were saying it was in January of 2021. And I found this in the opening sermon in my notes. Quote, For the next year or so, we are going to hear the Apostle Paul instruct us on the glories of salvation in Jesus Christ. End quote of myself. (laughs) I thought it might take us a year or so to work through this letter. I was wrong. I was so, so wrong. The math tells me that it took us more than twice as long as I anticipated to study this amazing letter. And now we've come to the last verses. I would be... Less than honest, if I didn't tell you all week, I was praying for the rapture this week so we wouldn't have to finish. Coming to the final sermon in this series is both rewarding and incredibly dissatisfying. Rewarding because of the wonder of God, the changes I've seen him make in my own life from this book. Dissatisfying because as I was looking back over some notes from previous sermons this week, Uh, we left a lot of meat on the bones. Here's some good news. After we finish today, Ephesians will still be in our Bibles. We may finish this series, but we're certainly not finished with this book. I want to commend you for your endurance for such a long and detailed study Few things encourage me as much as your love for the word, your love for the next verse, your love for God's truth and not caring how long it takes. We began our study with the title that you see on that screen, that Ephesians, the theme is the work and wealth of God in Jesus Christ. Think about that. The work of God, the wealth of God, all demonstrated to us, expressed to us in Jesus Christ. And today we come to the culmination. And the culmination of the whole book lands on pure, undistracted love and attention, unfiltered, unmitigated, and incorruptible love for the Savior. Paul has given us a tour of the work and the wealth of God in his son, Jesus Christ, that began, listen, back in eternity past, in election and in predestination. He begins with that in his book. He talks about how God's grace sustains us, how God informs us through the highs and lows of life and cares for us, and it culminates in our enjoyment of heaven. And that's just the first 14 verses. We've been taught by the apostle about our hell-bound past, God's gracious salvation of us from it, the beauty of diversity in the church, the nature of prayer, our relationship with him through his son and governed by his spirit, our need to change from our pre-Christian ways to God's expectations for our thinking and for our behavior, the best use of our time and redeeming the time, how to be controlled by God's spirit. He taught us our theology of singing and our theology of music in the church. Taught us how to get the most out of marriage. 
how to be better parents. He taught us how to be better God-pleasing employees and better God-pleasing employers. And just recently, we looked at that incredible passage where he teaches us how to defend ourselves and fight victoriously in spiritual warfare against the devil and demons. And that's just scratching the surface of what we've been able to learn from Paul in this epistle. In these six chapters, we have found the work and the wealth of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why, that's exactly how Paul sticks the dismount. That's where he comes in on the landing. That's how he concludes his letter. Paul began with a spiritually informed greeting and theologically cognizant doxology in the first three verses. And now he ends these six chapters with a divinely sourced blessing from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 23. The work and the wealth of God in Christ are summarized in these final two verses. And so as we do sometimes, we say, what are the takeaways? Well, Paul does that in these last two verses. What are the takeaways from the book? I want to find with you three parting takeaways for those who love Christ. That's obviously a reference to the Ephesians. I hope it's a reference to you, but we get that by looking at this verse from, from the end and then going to the beginning. Look at the last phrase. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love, without corruption, in other words. So that's his starting point. Those who love Christ, I want to give you three takeaways. We'll come back to that phrase in just a minute, but let's begin with these takeaways. The first, very simple, is peace. He extends peace to his readers. He doesn't have the right or the prerogative to grant them peace. He's saying, may God grant peace to you. It's the same thing he did in the first few verses of the book. He began his letter by saying his desire for the Ephesians was to experience grace and peace. Remember that? Ephesians 1, 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We've spent many uh, asides talking about how he groups God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ together to make us know that Jesus is indeed God's Son and Jesus is indeed by that relationship, God himself. Now he ends the letter with the same desire to have the readers experience grace and peace, but this time they're in reverse order. He starts with peace, ends with grace, and in between peace and grace is love. He sticks an extra one in there for us. We noted at the very beginning of our study, grace and peace are incredibly important doctrines and spiritual realities. It's so easy to read past those in the beginning of Paul's letter and to think that we need to get to the good stuff. That is the good stuff. Because when you boil it down, grace is everything we really need. God's undeserved favor. God's giving us salvation. God's giving us his son. Grace is everything we really need. And peace is everything our hearts truly want. If you think about it, everything we attempt to do in life is to try to establish peace, equilibrium in our lives by getting things, gaining things, by getting rid of things that are, that are troublesome. We all are looking for shalom, irene, peace. That's the Greek and the Hebrew notions of that. So grace and peace is everything you need and everything you want. He started the letter by saying, the gospel gives you everything you need and everything you want. Now he finishes the letter by saying, he gives you in the gospel, God gives you everything you want in peace, everything you need by grace. And the cherry on the Sunday is love from God as well. Ian Hamilton rightfully says this, quote, peace is the wholeness and richness of life that belongs to God's children. Paul is not seeking a trouble-free life for them, but a life overflowing with the rich sense of God's presence, a life of well-being that the darkest of life's circumstances cannot annul, end quote. That's important. 
I think Hamilton's right. He's not praying for them to have a cessation from all trouble. He's saying in the trouble that you'll have the presence of God which gives peace. That makes sense by virtue of what he says to the Philippians in Philippians 4, verse 7, verse 4 rather. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The accent on knowing God, on interacting with God himself, not just God's truth. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. Said positively, don't worry about anything. But by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request, this isn't just any request for what you want. This is a request for help in your time of anxiety. That's the context. Let your request be made known to God. And if you do, the peace of God, there's our subject, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So how do you do that? He says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, let your mind dwell on these things, Philippians 4.8. Paul extends peace, and we enjoy the peace of God when we seek him in prayer with our minds dwelling on what's true. And we learn from our study of the believer's armor that Satan's primary tactic since he's the father of lies, is to make us believe lies. So knowing God's truth is what settles our hearts in peace. That's why learning what's true about God, what's true about his character, is so crucial to Christian stability, so crucial to our growth. This is why we learn God's word, so our minds are steadied, calmed, hopeful, joyful. It's the way that we extinguish the darts that the devil flings at us, the arrows he shoots. So Paul extends peace to the brethren. The brethren, this is to all believers, especially the, the Ephesians here. No exemptions, no exceptions. And the point is, because we have peace with God, many, many times we studied that in this book, right? He established peace with us by pouring out his wrath on his son instead of us. Because we have peace with God, we can have peace with others and peace in all our circumstances. Peace with others, he says, Jews and Gentiles come together in peace, warring factions. They ate different, they dressed different, they talked different, they had different languages, they had different cultures. They disdained each other and God says, we're gonna put you together on the same pew. We can have peace with others because God has given us peace with him. And again, that's just review. The work and wealth of God in Christ brings peace, peace with God, and consequently peace with others. What is peace? Let me give you a real simple definition we've talked about many times. Peace is the settled confidence in God and his word. Very simple. Peace is a settled confidence in God and in his word. So the first takeaway that Paul wants the Ephesians to apply as they finish reading this letter is experience the peace of God. Secondly, love. Peace to the brethren and love, love also to the brethren, with faith. Now we find out a little bit more about this this uh, virtue, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We grasp love by faith and it's sourced in God himself. There's some debate, by the way, about whether Paul is speaking of the love of God to us or our love we're supposed to have for each other. I don't think it's that complicated. First, love is in the second in the list of, of the blessings that Paul is extending to the Ephesians along with peace and grace, it wouldn't make sense for him to say, peace from God to you, uh, 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 grace to God from you, and love each other. Now, that's true, and that's an implication, but it's love from God. The blessing of this love is given right in the next phrase, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This seems to be the love we enjoy as children of God, from God himself to us, and believers in his son. But don't get too far ahead of your skis. The, this love from God is, has a consequence in making us and causing us and motivating us to love one another. We love others, John says, because he first loved us. They're connected. The love of God is grasped, look at this, through, by, and with faith. Love with faith. Why does he say that? Peace to the brethren and love with faith. Why faith? Why does he encourage us to believe that God loves us? Because the devil would love for you to believe that he doesn't or doesn't keep on loving you. Listen, I, I have had dark moments in my, my, my walk with Christ. Sometimes when I've, I've struggled with security, can I still be your pastor if I tell you, even as a pastor, I've wondered sometimes, can I be saved and think this? Can I be saved and say that? Can I be saved and not do this and not do that? And at the heart of all that is, disbelieving God's sustaining love. Love of God is grasped through faith, is translated into our lives through faith. The love of God is imitated because of our faith. We believe it. Do you believe? Will you believe John 3.16? That God so loved you. Paul talks about this in the absolute center, the the, 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 the pinnacle of this argument in Ephesians 2, let me belabor it for a moment. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 1 says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of the world. But, <laughs> but God, however, but God, being rich in mercy, because, here's the motivation, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive from dead, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Raised us up with him. Seated us with him in the right, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, we might be these trophies. He might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. At the center of all that, why did he do that? Because of his great love. And the Greek is almost as interesting as is the English. You don't need to say as much as he says, you could have said with his great love. But he says, with his great love, with which he loved us. Two exclamation points on his love. One of the most meaningful hymns to my own soul is Frederick Lehman's The Love of God. Every time Aaron leads us in that, I just feel my heart start to race. The third verse of that hymn stands out as the most beloved, one of the most beloved in all of your hymnals. However, I found out something interesting in doing a little research that these were not originally Friedrich Lehmann's words. They have been found etched on the walls of an insane asylum a couple hundred years earlier. Yet they were shared with Lehman, and he... He makes those the core of the entire hymn. Interestingly enough, they weren't original on that cave wall, on that insane asylum wall. They were a translation of an old Arabic poem that comes from over a thousand years ago. No one knows the name of the author, or no, or no one knows the name of the uh, insane asylum patient. No one knows the author of that poem either, but it's clear that God's love had brought the authors of this poem to the point where they worshiped his love. 
So clarity, hope, sanity, if we can say that, were provided from this old poem that became etched on an asylum wall. Listen to it with the fresh ears. Also, I, I've told you before, I remember John MacArthur saying that he had a conversation with Bill Gaither and said, what, what do you think are the greatest lyrics ever penned outside of Scripture? And he said, the third verse of the love of God, this verse. Could we with ink, the ocean fill, the whole ocean's made of ink, and were the skies of parchment made, and every stalk on earth a quill, and every man by scri a scribe by trade. Well, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Paul desires that the Ephesian believers and we enjoy and duplicate God's incredible gift of love through our faith, our confidence in his disposition toward us because of our belief in the gospel of his son. God's love for us translates into our love for others. Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Listen to this. Walk in love, love each other, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. See the connection? Faith. With faith, our ability to grasp, to hold on to God's truth in a world saturated with Satan's lies. That's why Paul commanded us to take up the shield of faith in our battle with Satan and his demonic henchmen. Faith keeps us believing in God's love. And be sure, Satan wants you to doubt it in every trial, in every sin. He wants us to doubt God's disposition toward us as blood-bought children. So do you have faith in God's love for you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Is that your belief and your confidence and your hope? Paul says, I want you to take away peace from God. And love from God, which consequently has you love one another. And third, grace. Grace. Grace, verse 24. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Perhaps no word describes Christianity better than the word grace. Can I remind you of what he said back in chapter one, verse six? That when you think about salvation, when you look back at our predestination, our election, God's choosing us, God's taking care of us before we even cared about him. When you look back at his choosing, he says in verse six, this is all to the praise of his glorious grace. Christian sings amazing grace all throughout our lives and our days. What is grace? It's God's undeserved disposition, his undeserved kindness, his undeserved favor expressed to sinful rebels like us. And the apex, I think, in all of Paul's epistles explaining the wonder of grace is in chapter two, verses eight and nine of this epistle. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. He combines sola gratia, faith, grace alone, and sola fide, faith alone in one verse. By grace, God's grace, you have been saved through faith. This is important. And this saving is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of what you did works, what you can do so that no one may boast in their works, but we do boast, Jeremiah tells us, in God. 
It was grace that elected us. It was grace that drew us to Christ. It was grace that saved us. It's grace that secures and keeps us. It's grace that sustains us. And it will be grace that takes us all the way to heaven. John Newton understood this. Through many dangers, you know it so well. Through many dangers, toils, and snares. He looks back. I have already come. He looks back at his life and says, God's grace has sustained me and I recognize it. Tis grace that brought me safe so far. And what is it? Grace will lead me home. Peace, love, and grace. That's the extension of what Paul wants the believers to enjoy and the context in which he wants them to live. Now the final line in the book. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. You'll see that little word love in the New American Standard is in italics. It's not in the original. Literally, it's to all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ incorruptibly, without blemish, without corruption. Kenneth Wiest translates it like this. Grace be with all those who are loving our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. It's such similar language to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians eleven three. I'm afraid, I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Literally, simplicity and purity to Christ. It should land beautifully and heavily on your heart that the last thing we read in Ephesians is a description of the Ephesian believers that ought to be an admonition. We turn it into a bit of an imperative, a command. He says, grace and love and peace be extended to those who love Jesus Christ without any corruption, purely, simply, He's the object of our faith. He's the object of our love. But may I suggest that this final description of the recipients is more significant than might look at first reading and probably the most important phrase in the entire book. It's the ultimate qualification of growth as a believer, the only way to a life of happiness and joy that God intends for his children is love for Christ. It's important for us to take a little bit of a tour, not a detour, but a tour, as we put the period on this last sentence. What you find out about the Ephesian church is not only mentioned here in this book. We find the very beginning of the church in Acts chapter 18, verses 19 to 20. And in Acts 19, it recounts the very rough start that the Ephesian church had. You'll remember that Paul finds some disciples of John the Baptist who had not yet received the Holy Spirit. They were baptized in John's baptism. They didn't understand the Spirit's work in them. They didn't understand the Messiah had come. So he has the, they only knew John the Baptist's good news. They had followed it. There was no internet, there was no X or Twitter, so news hadn't reached them yet that John was actually speaking of another. Behold the Lamb of God. Paul teaches them about the theology and practice of baptism. He teaches them about the understanding of Jesus the Messiah and the gospel as the fulfillment of John's prophecies. 
John's preaching and teaching. Then Luke tells us that 12 men, think about this, the very first start, 12 men become Christians. But there's much resistance to the gospel in their early evangelistic efforts. Acts 19, Paul enters the synagogue. And again, we say this all the time. Paul, God told Paul specifically, you will be my missionary to the Gentiles. And in every single city, the first place he goes is the synagogue. And it never goes well. We know why he does that, because Romans 10 says that he could never let go of his desire for his countrymen to know the gospel. That's encouraging. He entered the synagogue, Acts 19, 19 verse 8, continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This was preaching and apologetic arguments. But when some were becoming, becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, that was a euphemism for Christianity, before the people, he withdrew from them, the synagogue, took away these 12 disciples and reasoned daily with them in the school of Tyrannus. And we don't know a whole lot about that school. It was likely a place uh, where philosophy was taught and debated. It's kind of the, the public community center. Then he went on teaching there for two years. As a result of this teaching, this equipping of these people, converts were being added to the church. The church began to grow, and Paul would end up spending three years there in Ephesus as their first pastor. I mean, can you imagine, it says morning to night, being taught not a sermon by Paul, but from morning to night, you just go check in on the school of Tyrannus, the community center, and there's Paul teaching again. All day. Acts 20 records a very interesting scenario. Paul would eventually leave, uh, continue his missionary efforts, um, would end up in, uh, in Corinth um, and would hear of what was going on in Jerusalem what was going on in Jerusalem, there were believers there who were literally starving to death. Because of their faith in Christ, they were disenfranchised from their jobs, their family, the synagogue. They were probably starving. No way to even make money because of the gospel. Paul hears about that. He's in Corinth, which is Macedonia. He takes an offering from the Corinthians, from the Macedonians, and then he comes down the coast of Asia Minor, down toward Israel, where he's gonna deliver that offering to the, the saints there in Jerusalem hopefully before Pentecost. God is so kind. Because he jumps on a merchant ship, a jump seat, as it were, and the ship takes port at Miletus, which is 30 miles from Ephesus. Now, if you want to feel a little bit physically convicted, that was a one-day walk for the, for the people. 30, day, 30, 30 miles. So he calls for the Ephesian elders who are just 30 miles inland, north and east from there, and says, come and see me. Now, the reason he didn't go there was, what if the ship left? Acts 20, verse 18 says, and when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink. By the way, when you look at the Jews and the Gentiles, there was an entire, uh, we skipped over the fact that there was a riot in Ephesus because the gospel was going out so strongly and part of the gospel is worship God in heaven, not idols, that people who are making idols were suffering in their business. So they got upset and staged a whole riot in the theater at Ephesus and we're going to basically take Paul and kill him. You know who helped him out of there, by the way, from last week? Tychicus. They said, Paul, don't go there. Paul was going to go down to the theater and kind of preach the gospel. And they said, no, no we're going to save you from yourself. You're not done yet. 
how I did not shrink, verse 20, from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, not only in the school of Tyrannus, but going to house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. We find out what happens to him there. They arrest him, charge him with blasphemy, send him up to Caesarea by the sea. He's there for two years, then is taken by boat to Rome where he has a shipwreck, bitten by a snake, ends up in Rome, and that's where he's going to write the book of Ephesians. And how about this? For God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me everywhere in every city saying, bonds and afflictions await me. Right after he says that, listen to his theology. The Holy Spirit had told him, bonds and afflictions, persecutions, beatings, floggings, as we read last week, are going to come to you. He says in Acts 20, 24, but, I know that, but, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Every time I read Acts 20, 25, I'm reminded of the last time I spoke to my dad before he died of cancer. We both knew, we both knew that was the last time we were going to speak. It wasn't very long. He was very weak. But I remember the feelings knowing that I would never speak to him again. That's what's going on here. Paul says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now he changes tone. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. For all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then this. And from among your own selves, these elders, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul looked around the room and he knew there would be defectors. Therefore, be on the alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with, with tears. And now I commend you to God, the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, who himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down with these Ephesian elders and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud, to sob. They embraced Paul, repeatedly kissing him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Paul was very aware that the church in Ephesus was going to be inundated with false teachers and false teaching, and sadly, some of them would arise from the elders themselves. His warning for the elders was to recognize these threats, these threatening men, to refute false teachers with sound doctrine. 
And the scene ends with Luke's description of the final goodbye between Paul and these precious friends and its tears and embraces and kisses. Paul then goes to Jerusalem. From there, he's charged. He's arrested by the Jewish leadership. He appeals to Rome. He's taken to Caesarea by the sea. He stays there two years. Then he has an incredible journey, as I said, where he's shipwrecked and he picks up some wood and he's bitten by a viper and lives through that. Ends up in Rome for two years, his first imprisonment in Rome. And it's there where he would write back to the Ephesians. I mean, think about this. Paul wrote... First and Second Timothy as pastoral counsel for Timothy, who was overseeing the church at Ephesus. And throughout both of those letters, there's an undeniable accent on false teachers and false teaching. Second Timothy 1 verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. He knew false teachers were coming in Ephesus. Timothy was a pastor. And he said, hold on to truth. Hold on, it's being threatened. Now, what I want you to see is that the Ephesian church was about to experience serious opposition from without and from within. And Paul understood the threat of theological confusion. He understood the personal defection from theological convictions that was coming. Huh. In 2 Timothy, when he's writing from the Mamertine prison, the second time in much less favorable conditions in Rome, he says in 2 Timothy 1.15, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. He saw these defectors. It's impossible to imagine a church that equaled the privileges of the Ephesian church. They were established by the Apostle Paul, enjoyed him as their pastor for three years. Timothy was their pastor after Paul. Add to that, they had three New Testament epistles written to them in their church, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. One more thing. You know who was an elder at that church in Ephesus? The Apostle John. From there, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and probably the Gospel of John as an elder in Ephesus. Fast forward 30 years. John has been arrested and put in exile on the Isle of Patmos in a cave where he receives a vision from Christ called the Book of Revelation. The resurrected Lord Jesus himself comes and says, here's what I want you to know, here's what I want you to see, here's what I want you to communicate. Interestingly, the book begins with seven letters penned by Jesus himself, divinely dictated to John the Apostle. The first letter is to the Ephesian church. What's the last thing that we read in the book of Ephesians? Love Christ with an incorruptible love. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds. I know your toil. I know your perseverance. That you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. Those are those false teachers. And they are not. And you found them to be false. Your doctrine was sharp. You were really accurate, really precise. You could snuff out false doctrine. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. It's a pretty good commendation. 
And then comes the word, but. But. I have this against you. Hang on. What's the last thing you read in Ephesians? Love Christ incorruptibly. Let him be your first and foremost affection and love. Jesus says, but I have this against you that you've left your first love. I think the last phrase of Ephesians 6 tells us what their first love should have been. It was Jesus himself. Apparently, the false teachers Paul warned about in Miletus were having influence. They were believing the lies of the devil. But the story, <laughs> story doesn't end there. Because I didn't finish reading the letter. Listen to the grace. Jesus says, I have this against you. You have left your first love. You've stopped loving me with incorruptible love. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at first. You know how to employ self-correction because I've seen you live properly and affectionately toward me before. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Jesus tells these Ephesians, if I am not your first love, I will snuff out your church. Remember from where you have fallen. What grace. I love what my junior high pastor said many, many years ago. You can take 100 steps away from God, but it's only one step back, and that step is repentance. So as we come to this final lesson of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we have to read this and hear this with the letter of Jesus to the Ephesians in mind. Right doctrine is indispensable. Confounding false doctrine is important. The Ephesians were very precise and defensive of doctrinal truth, but they had been duped to believe that believing the right things was the same things as intimacy with Christ. And it wasn't. Remember Matthew 7? There are people who get all the way to the judgment and they, they find themselves on the portals of heaven thinking they're going to go in and they say, they give a resume, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And, and Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. You did not have incorruptible love for me. So Paul's final description of a true believer is a prophetic warning to be those who love Christ incorruptibly. When you line Revelation 2 and the last phrase of the book of Ephesians, we see that we are to love the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ without corruption and without distraction. The final application of our study of this book, long three-year study of this book, is this. Do I love Jesus more than everything else? Can you sing, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold? Is he the object of your affections, your love? And is that love protected with your utmost urgency, determination, and earnestness? I think we would be well served to listen to the encouraging words of John Owen. He says, let us live in the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ. Just that's enough right there. 
Let us live in the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ, and virtue will proceed from him to repair all our decays, to renew a right spirit within us, and to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. He says, everything flows from our love for Christ. Owen goes on, when the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and for his glory, the soul thereon cleaves to him with intense affections. They will cast out or not give any admittance unto those causes of spiritual weakness and disposition. Again, Christ is the solution to all our ills and all our anxieties. And he finishes that paragraph by saying this, nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls thereunto as a constant view of Christ and his glory. This has been Paul's theme for six chapters of this letter to the church at Ephesus. Love Jesus with an incorruptible love. So we come to the end of our study. I will be eternally grateful and forever changed by this amazing letter from the Apostle Paul. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus with incorruptible love. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified for our sin, resurrected from the dead, seated in heaven at God the Father's right hand is the work and the wealth of God. I'm conflicted because I'm thankful for the sufficiency of God's word and that the book is over, but I wish there was verse 27. Let's pray. How can we say thank you sufficient for this book? <clears throat> thank you for the changes that you've made in my own life. and thank you that Ephesians is not going anywhere from our Bibles bring us back help us to drink deeply and to be those who love your son with a love that's incorruptible in Jesus name Amen.